This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, Art Curious listeners. Before we start, I want to give you a heads up that I have a brand new ebook out. Have you ever wanted to learn how to do what I do and create a successful podcast of your very own? Let me help you. In Podcast Perfection, the right questions and tools for starting a winning audio show, I take you step-by-step through the process of planning and executing your own audio show. This book is only available for purchase on Amazon, or you can read it for free with Kindle Unlimited. So check it out. Search for Podcast Perfection on Amazon right now and make it yours. That's Podcast Perfection on Amazon. The beginning of the 20th century was a glittering time of hope and innovation. In the decade before the First World War and in the midst of technical advances, such as the development of the telephone and the first automobile, the globe felt smaller and better than ever before. It also set the stage for what was one of the golden ages of art, particularly in Paris, that glamorous capital of all things cultural, where writers such as Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Gertrude Stein hobnobbed and debated ideas with painters like Salvador Dali, Georges Braque, and many others who filled the bars, cafes, and salons, working and discussing politics with their idyllic fantasies of what art could be. Thinking and dreaming big was the norm, and collaborating and sharing in each other's concepts and victories was too. But there was a shadowy side to such sharing, where friendships and support could morph into jealousy and competitiveness as the drive to become the best took ultimate control. It is within this sparkling Parisian backdrop that what is probably the greatest rivalry in art history played out. What is modern art and what could it be? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, or lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today, we are completing our series on the great rivalries in art history with two biggies of the 20th century, Henri Matisse and Pablo Picasso, and their competing ideas about the future of art. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Art historians like to debate a lot of things. It's what we do. And one of the topics that gets argued about most frequently is this. Who is the quote-unquote father of modern art? Sexism aside, because how often do you hear someone asking about the identity of the mother of modern art, there are a few different names that you can throw out. Personally, I like to start in the mid-19th century with Manet and Courbet as the prime candidates, like we mentioned briefly in our last episode, while others move forward and present Paul Cézanne as the rightful standard bearer. 
But if you are thinking of modernism as a 20th century thing primarily, then many will throw out one name and one name only. Pablo Picasso. Picasso, that crazy bald Spanish guy who loves striped shirts and made paintings where people's body parts are all mixed up. That's what you know at the very least if you know art, even just a little bit. But there's just as fervent a fan base for Henri Matisse as the father of modern art, that bearded savant whose concepts of color paved the way for artists decades after. Many passionate lovers of modern art will fall to one side or the other of the Picasso versus Matisse debate. They will claim that Picasso's Guernica is the greatest work that they have ever seen, or that Matisse's woman with a hat changed their notion of what a portrait could be. It's funny, but we almost feel like we're being forced to take sides, like you're not allowed to find both of them equally influential, though of course they both are. One or the other, but not both of them. Which is a shame, really, because Picasso owed much to Matisse, and vice versa and they share as many similarities as they do differences. Pablo Picasso is the younger of the pair, the enfant terrible who arrived on the art scene with a giant splash. He was born in 1881 in the Spanish town of Malaga to a father who was himself an artist. So Picasso, of course, had a leg up in the art world there. Early on, he was considered to be a child prodigy, whose art training naturally began as a child at the hands of his father, who always proclaimed that his son's first word was lapis, or pencil. In 1895, the Picasso family moved to Barcelona, largely to offer the teenaged Pablo a better education and more opportunities for his budding art career. His father got a job at the School of Fine Arts, and that connection allowed Picasso the chance to complete the entrance exam for enrollment. Normally, such a process took students a month to complete, but Picasso took only one week to finish it, at the age of just 13. It should come as no surprise that he was quickly admitted to the school, and by the age of 19, Picasso was copying the works of Spanish masters like Goya and El Greco in museums across the country, including the Great Prado in Madrid. However, it wasn't those artists of his home country who made the greatest impression on his burgeoning, unique style. The men who influenced him most were Paul Cezanne, the great post-impressionist, and Henri Rousseau, whose so-called primitive painting style was like catnip to the young Picasso. Picasso, by the way, even got in on that whole father of modernism debate when he said, later, quote, My one and only master, Cezanne, was like the father to us all. Rule breakers themselves, Cezanne and Rousseau were headed in their own ways, towards what would become known as highlights of cubism. The flattening of the picture plane, the abstraction of objects and individuals down to basic geometrical forms, and a flat and a fascinating angular approach. But like Rousseau and Cezanne before him, Picasso was finding it difficult among the formal art settings of Barcelona to have his work accepted and admired. And so he went to where his great heroes had lived and worked. And he moved to Paris in 1900 to pursue a new path, which he made official when he permanently moved to the capital in 1904. By the time Pablo Picasso arrived in Paris, there was another painter who had begun pursuing a new career path there, with a similar intention. Henri Matisse was born on December 31, 1869, in Le Cateau in the Picardy region of France. 
Unlike Pablo Picasso, though, Matisse had no familial connection to the arts, and it was, in fact, far from his young mind, and he intended to become a lawyer all the way into his 20s. In 1880, Matisse moved from Le Cateau to Paris specifically to get a head start on his legal career. And while he was there, he decided that he needed a little diversion, something fun to break up his study of dry law texts. So he began to sit in on drawing classes at a nearby school, and he began to fall in love with it. By 1891, he abandoned his plans and studies for a legal career to pursue his new passion for painting full-time. While it may be hard to believe now, given the radical and avant-garde work Matisse remains famous for, he received strenuous, rather formal art training at fairly traditional conservative institutions, like the Académie Julien or the École de Beaux-Arts. After that point, he received additional training and apprenticeship in the studio of the symbolist painter Gustave Moreau, with whom he worked until 1899. There, he was known as a diligent, focused, and meticulous worker, and that hard work and attention to detail really paid off. By the age of 30, Matisse began to show his works within the Salon Society of Paris, as well as making the acquaintance of other up-and-coming artists like Paul Gauguin. Inspired by these connections and the optimistic response his artwork garnered, he was ready to make something new. Bold pieces focused mainly on the use and manipulation of color through which he could make a splash. About this, Matisse would later say, quote, color became sticks of dynamite. Such adherence and pursuit of color caused Matisse to be given the title of the de facto leader of the Fauves, or Wild Beasts, a group of artists deemed nuts for their use of brutal, or wild colors. Matisse and Picasso first came in contact with each other through their art. They were both exhibited together in a 1902 exhibition at a small gallery in Paris, but they apparently never met. They finally came together in person thanks to the helping hand of the famous writer and art collector Gertrude Stein. A close friend to both artists, Gertrude Stein could never really have predicted that her simple invitation to these men would spark a rivalry between two powerhouse artists of the 20th century. At the time, the connection was fairly casual. Stein, alongside her brother Leo, was a fanatic patron of the arts. Dare we say, matron of the arts? And together, the Steins purchased numerous works by both Matisse and Picasso separately. In the way that you do when you really enjoy the company and creativity of two different people, Gertrude Stein really wanted Matisse and Picasso to meet, to get to know each other, and really even become friends themselves. So in 1906, the Steins took Matisse on a visit to Picasso's studio for an introduction, and then began inviting both artists together to their weekly salons. And it was there at the Stein residence that a rivalry, instead of a friendship, took hold between a fiery young Spanish upstart and an older established French painter. The fact that the Steins supported and purchased works by both Picasso and Matisse made for a constant battle between the two artists, as each hoped to gain more favor with the collectors than the other. Various records exist to show how critical each artist could get with one another. For example, after the Steins bought Matisse's important Blue Nude in 1907, an American friend of Gertrude's, the writer Walter Pock, admired it openly at one of the salon evenings. Picasso was right there next to him, so Pock asked for his opinion on the piece. According to Pock, the conversation went as follows. Quote, Does that interest you? asked Picasso. I said, 
Yes, in a way, but I don't understand what he's thinking. Neither do I, said Picasso. If he wants to make a woman, let him make a woman. If he wants to make a design, let him make a design. This is between the two. So, not nearly as snippy as you might expect these two artists to be towards or about each other. But still, Picasso didn't have anything truly nice to say about the blue nude. And it was because of two things. One, the Steins really liked it, and so it was possible that he felt a little jealous. And two, he was possibly also a little afraid that Matisse's innovative use of color and form might overtake his own cubist experiments with shape and space. Ultimately, each artist opposed the other style of painting because they were fundamentally different approaches. What's interesting about the rivalry between Matisse and Picasso is that neither artist was necessarily trying to outdo the other at their own game or in their own style. No, it was actually that both believed firmly that their chosen style was better or more skillful at achieving a truly modern art aesthetic, as if there could or should only be one type or style of modern art. Which is why the Parisian art scene, and also the smaller up-and-coming New York art scene, were quite taken with both Matisse and Picasso at the same time, just for different reasons. There's more to the story coming up right after this. Summer is the perfect time to dive deeply into topics that already interest you or to find something totally new. I'm doing that right now by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. I love these wonderful lectures where I get the opportunity to learn from engaging experts who give me unlimited access to so many amazing topics. Everything from history, math, science, music, even how to cook or to take better photos, which is perfect for a summer travel season. So with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen wherever you want, which is, again, perfect for taking road trips or long plane rides. This time I'm recommending checking out their course on the great artists of the Italian Renaissance. This is one of my favorite periods of art, and there is so much to learn. The artists and masterpieces that defined the Italian Renaissance and inspired the next 500 years of Western art. You can learn everything about artists like Michelangelo, Botticelli, Leonardo, and others who created these incredible works of art during the political and religious turmoil of the 16th century. This is the perfect course to get started with, or of course you can choose from any of the options on The Great Courses Plus. So right now, my listeners will receive a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. So sign up now through my special URL to get started. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Do it now, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Today's episode of Art Curious is sponsored by Renolda House Museum of American Art, where you can find one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in a beautiful, unique domestic setting. The restored 1917 mansion of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds, surrounded by gorgeous gardens and peaceful walking trails. As a North Carolinian, I've enjoyed numerous visits to Rinalda, especially over the last few years. And I've got to say that not only is it a place to see world-class art, but to do so in such a breathtaking and charming setting is truly a wonderful experience. Upcoming exhibitions include Dorothea Lange's America in fall 2018 and Hopper to Pollock, American Modernism in spring 2019. You can browse Ronalda's art and decorative arts collections and see what's coming up next at their website, ronaldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house 
www.winstonsalem.org. And even better, visit in person in historic Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. There are three plans to choose from. There's the classic plan, veggie, and the family option, which is definitely of interest to me. So with the family plan, you can make family dinners fuss-free with HelloFresh's picky eater, kid-tested and approved recipes. And on top of all of that, you can enjoy not having to plan dinner, spending money on takeout for an easy night, or worry about gathering ingredients week after week. I experienced this in person recently when I made an incredibly tasty and very easy round of poblano pork tacos with a smooth lime crema. And all of us, including my toddler, went absolutely nuts for them. And when my kid usually only wants to eat peanut butter toast, this was a huge vote of confidence. On top of all of that, I was super relaxed about having to make dinner because I didn't have to spend all night in the kitchen. All HelloFresh meals take around 30 minutes or less to get to your table. So spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week and get that time back to do more of what you love, whether that's hanging out with your family, watching a movie, or listening to a podcast like this one. Get delicious, filling meals delivered right to your door every week for less than $10 per serving, plus free shipping. And for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com slash ArtCurious30 and enter promo code ArtCurious30. Make cooking something you actually want to do when you get home from work and get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Visit HelloFresh.com slash ArtCurious30 and enter promo code ArtCurious30. Let's take an example of each of the artist's works to delineate their differences. Many listeners will already be familiar with what is perhaps the most famous work in the history of modern art, Picasso's 1907 breakthrough, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. The unveiling of this artwork not only revealed Picasso's guts to break the rules of the art world, but it marked a clear break with any of the rules of conventional art when it came to depicting the human form. It took Picasso several attempts— sketches, studies, and trial runs to reach his final composition featuring five prostitutes, two of whom are donning African masks. But these are not the nudes the way that you are used to seeing them in traditional painting. Their cropped, boxy, and disoriented forms, outlined thickly, are harsh to the eye at first glance, and it's easy to see just how scandalous such images were at first to Parisian society. These women are not just nude. They are naked, and they are brazen in their eye contact with us, the viewers. One woman crouches down, perhaps even wiggling her hips, a starkly seductive act, next to an incongruous still life of a Cezanne-like fruit bowl. These women are daring us, even teasing us with a cold, appraising stare. They are the descendants of Manet's Olympia, but taken to the next level. While Les Demoiselles is not perfect, we are quick to identify a sense of the potential Picasso must have felt within Cubism. 
In the folds of the abstractions he created, his paintbrush planted bits of story and concept, which is rewarded only after close looking. Cubism is chaos at first glance, but after that initial shock of the new, the energetic order that is inherently there bubbles up to the surface. Things were a little different from Matisse. Although interested in cubism, in that he found it a curious development, he rejected it and instead sought to use color as the foundation for expressive, decorated, and often monumental paintings. For him, color held the key to representing any subject best, as well as garnering a specific response from the viewer. As a sidebar, it makes sense that Matisse would come to this conclusion, as colors have long been associated with emotion. This is why redheads are thought of as fiery, and why we note that we are feeling blue when we are sad. So Matisse's own use of color was specific and methodical. Largely focused on paintings and still lifes, Matisse's innovation came from such intensely saturated colors to paint any scene in a new way. There was no longer a need to have colors that represented the natural world or what something actually looked like. Similarly, unlike for Picasso, it wasn't important if his figures or scenes were harshly fragmented or made completely of lush and curvy lines that were readable to his audience. It was via his color choices that Matisse would capture the personality and mood of his models or environment. Take, for example, Matisse's The Dessert, Harmony in Red, produced only one year after Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Honestly, you probably couldn't pick two works of art that were made around the same time period that are so completely different. Because Harmony in Red is a wonderful scene of a woman arranging a bowl of fruit in a rich, vermilion-toned room with a patterned tablecloth, wallpaper, a cane chair, and a window presenting us with a verdant landscape with an outbuilding. But it's almost hard to see anything but red. The same red blankets the tablecloths and also the walls, both of which have the same blue and black floral design. Because of this, any sense of depth or dimension gets flattened by the color and one part of the room just kind of blends into one another. So much so that the young woman there seems less like an integral figure, but part of the decoration itself. Not that the work leaves you feeling cold. On the contrary, it's warm, seductive, inviting. And I really want to have a seat at that table and grab one of those apples so lovingly displayed there. Matisse once noted that he wanted to create an art that would be, quote, a soothing, calming influence on the mind. I feel that. I feel buoyed by a sense of wonder and joy when looking at this work, whereas Picasso's Demoiselle fill me with awe and curiosity, but also a little chill. When you come at the fundamental concept of what art is or what could be from totally different sides, it makes sense that Henri Matisse and Pablo Picasso would feel so strongly about their rivals' works. They not only compared themselves to one another, but their work, rightfully so, was argued about and placed in contrast with one another by collectors, dealers, and other artists, all of whom also felt strongly about what the new direction of art making should be. And not only were the two compared in their aesthetic lives, but their personal lives and reputation also got a dose of tension in comparison. While Matisse was known to be meticulous and a family man, Picasso was often pitted as a modern Dionysian fellow of sorts, a womanizer, impulsive and indulgent. This personality-driven comparison was expanded to encompass their subject matter, too, as Picasso's works often featured subjects from the margins of society, such as the poor or prostitutes, as in Les Demoiselles. But Matisse? 
he painted more comfortable homey works, at least in the beginning. What I find hilarious is not only do the comparisons continue today between Picasso and Matisse, but their differences have also been used as a litmus or a personality test of some sort. The UK's Guardian newspaper even published a very jokey, very British quiz in 2002 so that you can determine if you're a Picasso or a Matisse, with questions like, which window are you looking at today? Through which you can respond, A, the shuttered one, B, the cubist one, C, the one with lace curtains, or D, the shattered one. More seriously, though, are the exhibitions that have tackled this comparison straight on, like the seminal 2003 exhibition, Matisse-Picasso, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The question continues to matter because, in the words of Anne Baldessari, curator of the Musée Picasso, quote, the relationship between Matisse and Picasso reflects on the whole history of modern art. The Matisse-Picasso show wasn't a greatest hits exhibition where the best Picassos were placed in a room nearby the very best Matisses, but instead, works by each artist were placed next to one another, one by one, to show that they were made in dialogue with one another, and that they occasionally influenced one another. They were equally talented and important artists. They were just different, that's all. And even Matisse knew this, once stating that he and Picasso were like the North and South Poles of the globe. That difference didn't manifest itself in a rivalry of the same caliber as that between Constable and Turner, for example. They weren't at each other's throats, and though they totally disagreed on what art could look like, they ultimately were fighting the same battle against the traditions of art, against realism, against formal aesthetics, against all that art should be, instead playing with what art could be. And as allies in that same battle, they ultimately had a respect for one another. In fact, Picasso once famously said, quote, if I were not making the paintings I make, I would make paintings like Matisse. And Matisse said much the same about Picasso. It's obvious that this grudging admiration, as well as their competition, was one of the reasons that Picasso kept such close tabs on Matisse and vice versa. Matisse often referred to their relationship as a, quote, boxing match, but self-doubt plagued him when he was compared to the younger, brutish artist. As Harvard art historian Eva Lambois notes in a catalog for the 1999 exhibition Matisse and Picasso, a gentle rivalry, quote, Picasso, the younger artist, was constantly trying to get Matisse's attention by showing off, stealing from his work, and rudely parodying him. Matisse, envious of Picasso's success, tried to ignore him, but they were too competitive to really be friends. So a close relationship was out of the question. But as both artists aged, their rivalry softened and cooled. And Matisse even reached out to Picasso in the 1930s as a way to seek inspiration in the midst of an artistic funk. That launched a different phase of the Matisse and Picasso conversation, one that was gentler, wherein the artists visited one another, exchanged notes and ideas, and even traded paintings, just like Manet and Degas, until Matisse passed away in the 1950s. Whatever their relationship truly was, behind all the gossip and the speculations and the greater-thans, it cannot be denied that their mutual influence pushed each of them to produce their best works and forever changed our sense of what modern art is. So, perhaps rivalry is the wrong word. 
Maybe this was a correspondence where jealousy, admiration, and forced coexistence produced a complicated and viscous mix that to us as outsiders could look like a fierce clash fueled by disdain and bitterness, but it might really have been an unassuming brotherhood of sorts. Rather than raising the hand of the victor at the end of this particular boxing match, we might rather freeze the frame at the moment in the ring where the boxers lean on each other for support and repair, gaining strength and strategizing for the next move in the long history of art. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast, the final in our third season of Art Rivalries. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me with additional research and writing by Stephanie Pryor. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki, video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight, an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. And thanks once more to everyone at Anchorlight for their support. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to our show and it is fully tax deductible. So follow the donate links at our website for more details. And as always, you can go to that site for more images, information, and links to our previous episodes, artcuriouspodcast.com. Or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArtCuriousPod. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts so that we can share more art history with more listeners. We are already hard at work on researching and writing our fourth season, if you can believe it. So we will be posting updates and release dates later this fall. Check back in a few months as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.